Okay. All right. Now, there should just be no discussion this morning. Everything should be clear as, as, as mud. Um, missing blanks. Any big missing blanks? Okay. Okay, Jim? Hey, you guys got it. Oh, okay. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, Marion needs a blank. Oh, the mic's coming. Mic's coming. I probably don't need one. 4C1. Not one person. Not one person. Um, 4C2, but one will in nature. Um, okay. 4B. The father powerfully acts to preserve the sheep. Preserve the sheep. Any others? Dean Levang came up with a great idea. I'm going to do it next week. I'm just going to project the filled-in sheet behind us. Yeah, in the five minutes before the ABF, that's that would that'd be so great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Ah, okay, okay, um, okay. Um, lots of places we can go, but now open it up to questions, thoughts, complaints, haikus. Jim. I do know a haiku, but I'll save okay. y'all um, from that. <clears throat> um, first off, I'd like to thank you for teaching um, boldly and clearly this morning. And as someone who was saved at 40 years old, um, John 10 is so sweet to me because I was the guy who was had a wavering love affair with sin and uh in god's perfect timing he i i knew i was his sheep when i was 40 years old and to me in my opinion there is no sweeter doctrine or god glorifying doctrine than the doctrine of election it is purely for his glory it takes all works and all credit of salvation out of the person's um you know uh, person's uh activity or what have you and, and gives and, and gives it to god i am a loved gift from the father to the son and i just once again thank you for preaching it boldly and it is so clear to me and it is so sweet and it is so god glorifying so yeah thank you Renee. That's no, coming the other way. Thank you. Um, 2A. Oh, we finished with the blanks, Renee. No, I'm not blanking. Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay, okay. But when you said they do not believe because they are not Jesus' sheep, do you think that's ever appropriate to say to someone who's arguing with you? <laughs> on and on and on. Uh, Jesus can say that with uncertainty you see the thing is his history surprises us i mean who would have thought that paul saul I know. was a sheep right yes i mean so I, I think that jesus can make these types of statements plainly um whereas the danger the danger for us would be if we presume to know um then we could become very very self-righteous and harsh what you could say instead is i'm going to stop throwing my pearls before you and i'll let you figure out why sorry that's kind of snarky too but the point being at this moment you're trampling them 
And so at this moment, you're treating them like you're a pig, and so I'm gonna stop doing that. That doesn't mean later you, you might not be switched teams, but right now, you're, you're, you're acting like a dog, you're acting like a pig. And so right now, I'm, I'm gonna stop letting you trample over it. I mean, I would, I'm still, I don't know if I'd say that, but if you want something that maybe you could say with, with a little, yeah, you just, well, we don't know. I mean, there's the, right. the, the, the language of Second uh, Corinthians, Paul, God, Paul says, God leaves us in a triumphal procession and that the word pictures of a foreign king who's gone on a conquest and he brings back the leaders that he defeated. We're that train. I mean, so Paul is a trophy. This guy was persecuting my church. Now he's dying for the church. Yes. Nebuchadnezzar writes a chapter of yes. the Bible. Who would have seen that one coming, right? Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, we, we Maybe don't we know. could sweeten it like you appear to not be Jesus' <laughs> sheep, but maybe you could pray that right. you would become so. Right. No, you, 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 uh, <laughs> you, um, you're, you're acting like you're not his sheep. That, sure, that's fair enough. That's what you're okay. acting like, yeah. Um, right. But no, I'd, I'd really want to withhold any of that final judgment that I think yes, Jesus yes, can yes, say. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, that we just, there's too many surprises. Right, right. Yeah, good point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, way too many surprises. Um, Jeremy. You said something just then that sparked some thought in my mind. <clears throat> Biblically speaking, Nebuchadnezzar was a sheep. I think so, yeah. When he was tormenting and yes. torturing just like, just like paul was i mean so jesus is speaking so okay let's let's not broaden our categories paul paul the sheep are sheep as they hear his voice and follow him what are people who don't hear his voice and follow him now but someday will i don't know if i'd call them sheep jesus is telling us what the sheep do so paul in 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 ephesians 2 can let's go to ephesians 2 um as someone who believes in the doctrine of election um, someone who's not afraid to be called a Calvinist um, we want to be careful we're not saying we came into this world under wrath we needed to repent and believe we weren't reconciled with God from birth Paul says in, in, in Ephesians 2 you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, Paul included, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul was by nature a child of wrath until Paul was converted. So uh, I sometimes will hear people who get so on board with seeing, with being excited about election, that you get the impression they've always been reconciled with God. Paul says no. Whatever the truth is, the, the, Paul was by nature a child of wrath till Paul converted, was converted. So I, I would be uncomfortable calling somebody who's not hearing Jesus' voice and not following him, his sheep. Like God, God can look and see. I know what I plan. I know what's going on. From our point of view, I would never, I would not think there's any biblical warrant to call somebody who is not hearing Jesus' voice and not following him a sheep. In fact, that's part of what I was trying to argue against this morning, that it's not that Jesus, the good shepherd, makes indestructible sheep. Rather, he guards his sheep. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, it's just something that we can see later on looking yes. looking back at their life. They are not a responsive sheep, <laughs> but ultimately they will become a sheep. Sure. Right. right. No. So, so yeah, it's, it's uh, these categories. You want to use them the way they're being used. Jesus is insistent. His sheep hear his voice. His sheep follow him. So I don't think there's biblical warrant to call somebody not hearing his voice and not following him as sheep. Jesus may know, he does know, not may know, there's no may about it. Um, Jesus knows the reality. We judge the whole, like if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck is a duck. Um, so yeah, okay. Don. Um, a couple things. Could not uh, belief and following, as Jesus talks about his sheep and those that aren't his sheep, those uh, be interchangeable? In other words, a person who doesn't believe will not follow. A person who does not follow does not believe. Yes. I, th I think they're inseparable. I think it is important to distinguish because as much as the faith that justifies is always going to produce works, the New Testament does seem to want to distinguish the faith from what it produces. And so we're justified by faith, not works, but the faith that justifies works. Mm -hmm. So that distinction, I think, is a good distinction to keep in mind. But you're completely right. I mean, go to, the, go to the last verse of John 3, where faith and disobeying are used as antonyms. Um, yeah, the, the New Testament, you could almost, not quite, but almost argue that faith means something like obey. And the last verse of John 3 would, would, would demonstrate that type of understanding. They're not the same, but they're really close. So look at this antithesis. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But what, what, what happens to those people who believe but don't obey? This verse excludes that possibility, right? The logic only works if the two go together. So, so um, whereas I do want to distinguish faith from works, I don't want to separate faith from works. Um, so, yeah. Uh, also, um, we said that Jesus repeatedly claimed equality with God, and yet uh, he later says that his father is greater than he is. Yes. I'm going to tuck that up for next week because next week we're going to deal with the, the best argument I've ever heard against the deity of Christ comes from next week's text. I was absolutely silenced by a JW in a park in New York City 20 years ago with this text. Um, the Jehovah Witnesses don't believe Jesus is God. And um, we'll, we'll deal. So I'm going to catch that up next week. But, but basically, to jump ahead, and I'm not going to try to resolve this yet, I was, I was, there's this Jehovah Witness sitting on a park bench, and I was, even as a young believer, I'd only been a believer for like a year or so, but Word of Life Bible Institute, you signed up for various ministries, and mine was open-air evangelism, so they sent a team of like eight or ten of us to New York City. Like I was, I was evangelizing under the World Trade Center before it came down in 99. Um, and, uh, no, in 2000, in 2000 before it came down, that's right, yeah. Um, and, uh, so there, there I am. And they sent, even then they're like, if they've met weird cultists and stuff, they'd call me in, you know, the, the other people on the team who knew less than me and I didn't know much. And so that I'm dealing with this like 60 year old JW who's just grinning at me. Ah, oh, man, I still get mad. 
No, mad mad because I didn't know how to answer him. I'm not mad at him. I mean, he's just being, wretches are going to wretch. Um, he's, he, so he's sitting there and he's like, you believe Jesus is God? And I said, yeah. And he'd throw an argument out and he'd give him an answer. And I'd throw an argument out and he'd, he'd throw an argument out and give him an answer. And finally throws John 10 out at me and I got nothing. I'm like, well, I'll have to look into that. And I still remember what he smugly says is, don't worry, young man. I'm sure if you study it, you'll figure it out. <laughs> okay, so I went to seminary and I studied. So if I meet him again, I'm ready. Um, but, but uh, no, dude, that bugged me. Oh, man. Um, but the, the argument is, and I'm not, we're not going to get totally side-trailed next week. I don't want to ruin next week. But the argument is, his argument is, this reading of John 10, is that Jesus is not claiming, when Jesus claims to be the Son of God, according to this reading, which is wrong, he is not claiming equality with God. He's just claiming something anyone could claim. Um, look, look at 10, um, 33. The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Now, according to this guy on the bench, here's the perfect spot for Jesus to say, yes, exactly. But no, what Jesus says, in fact, is, um, do you, um, if he called, so Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said to you, you are gods. Now he's quoting in the Psalms where God, speaking of human rulers, calls them gods, just like the nations have gods. So Jesus' argument is, hey, inerrant Holy Scripture can call mortal men gods. So why are you mad at me for calling myself the Son of God? And his arguments sure looks like Jesus, when he had the opportunity to say, bingo, I am making myself equal with God, actually de-escalates and says, nah, I just, just, you know, I mean it like the Psalms mean it. And I was like, ah, and, you know, next week I'll be able to answer. Um, but, but so I'm, so I'm going to scoop up all of the, is the father. So, yeah, if you're an, historically, the Arian controversy, Arius, was the, the one of the earliest rifts in the, the church was over the deity of Christ. And this was pretty much the central text that they were arguing that Jesus wasn't God from. Not the only one, but this was a major one. This is a massively controversial text in the, in the history of the church and in Arianism. Um, the Father's greater than Jesus. No, exactly. So I, I, I'm going to catch all that up next week, so I didn't deal with that this morning. Well, it, your last uh, 4C2, uh, I think, kind of answers it. They're the same, or they're equal in nature and right. in will. Right. They aren't, they aren't the same person. They aren't. You know, right. the, the Son submits to the Father. The Father does not submit to the Son. Right. No, no, ab ab absolutely. Although, honestly, that point is more coming from the backlog of John's gospel than something I could prove in this verse. Right. There's some ambiguity in this verse. Now, the grammatical thing is, so the, the, the you guys ever study languages that have, um, all the nouns are either masculine, and feminine, or neuter, I think. I think Spanish is inflected like that. So the the word for one here, hen, I believe is neuter. If it were masculine, you could argue he's saying we're one person. But it's something like we're one thing. We're one, some abstract concept, which is why it's not one person. This isn't modalism. Jesus isn't claiming to be the father. They're one something else. And then the context has got to fill in what that something else is. And sure, from coming from John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Before Abraham was, I am. With all that backlog of John's text, I'm going to argue one nature. But this particular passage doesn't make that explicit. 
we got to keep going through it. So I'm, I'm supplying that with a cumulative study of John's gospel, not, if I was talking to that guy on the park bench, he'd say, well, you're reading that into this verse. Into this verse, there is some ambiguity. In what sense is he one? That's precisely what the Jews are going to pick up stones because they think he's claiming equality with God. And the question is, well, then why does he de-escalate? Why doesn't he say, no, precisely, bingo, you got it. That's the, that's the Jehovah Witnesses argument to me that I didn't have an answer for 20 years ago. So we're gonna be ready in a week. I hope he listens in. Um, anyway, um, other, but no, let's, let's talk about other stuff. That's not good, that's next week. That's just a sampler for next week. Um, but yeah, Mel. I wonder if you could share a little bit. It's my understanding the Father chooses people from eternity past. That's my understanding. And the Holy Spirit calls people depending upon when he decides to do that. That's what Jesus says, I think, in John 3. Yes. Some is very early in life. Some is very yes. late in life. Yes. I don't know if you want to expand on that a little bit. Sure. Um, let's go. Let's work. Let's go to John 17. Then we'll work back to two, and then three, and then we'll go to 15. Um, John 17. So we'll we will spend some time in 17. 17 is a remarkably deep passage. Um, Don Carson's message from the Desiring God conference on John 17 is easily, easily in the top five most edifying messages I've ever heard in my life. I've, I've heard it a dozen times and where I'll post it on Facebook or something. It's fantastic. Um, but he, he does, I'll just go through this. So if you want a very, very, very brief three-point outline of Jesus' prayer, in verses one to five, Jesus prays for himself. His, his prayer request is fundamentally, I want to come back to the glory I had with you. I finished the work you gave me. So, Father, bring, bring me back to you. Then in 6 to 19, he's praying for his disciples. And then in 20 to the end, he's praying for all of the rest of his sheep. But let's, let's start in verse 6, um, and you'll see the gift language repeated over and over and over. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. They have kept your word. Now they know that everything thing that you have, now they know that everything that you have given to me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. What you're seeing here is the Son is anticipating um, he is handing off the preservation of his sheep to the Father while he is on the cross. He says, I've kept them in your name. Holy Father, will you keep them in your name? I'm coming to you. So Jesus' concern 
on the night before he's crucified, after praying in five verses for himself, is the preservation of his sheep. He so he will hold them fast. They will not slip out of his hands that he hands them off to his father as he's preparing to approach the cross. So, um, verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. This is precisely how Jesus taught us to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Um, Then we get to us. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, the glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me. You can't argue that it's just limited to the 12. I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these words that you have sent, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. We are caught up in intra-Trinitarian love. We're caught up in the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father. So there, among other places, I think is explicit that we are a love gift to the fa- from the Father to the Son. Now go to three. Um, follow Mel's point. Jesus humbles Nicodemus by insisting, despite all of his rabbinical learning, all of his accreditation, in our vernacular, all the letters after his name, Nicodemus is unqualified to see and recognize truth apart from a work of God in his heart. So Nicodemus comes, I think, to audit and inspect Jesus, and Jesus will have none of it. Jesus will not be sized up by him which I think explains why Jesus' response in verse 3 of chapter 3 may seem so abrupt. Nicodemus, as far as he goes, is entirely orthodox. Um, Verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That's wholly orthodox and true. It's not nearly enough, but nothing wrong. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Nicodemus, Jesus is challenging Nicodemus's ability to see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And then, Mel, to your point, verse 8, what is the new birth like? If the new birth is a prerequisite to seeing and entering the kingdom, what causes the new birth? The wind blows where it wishes. Now, the, there's, a, there's a play on words here because you'll, you'll know this Greek word, pneuma, as in pneumatic. It's wind. It's breath, air. So the things that are pneumatic or air-powered. And the Greek word for spirit, wind, and breath is pneuma or panuma, depending on how you want to say it. Um, and so the word for spirit, breath, and wind is the same word. Spirit blows where he wishes, the wind blows where it wishes, the breath blows where it wishes, it's, it's all the same. So, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound. So where does the wind blow? Where it wishes. It's the desire of the will, of the wind, in this analogy, where the wind blows. But you hear it sound. We only see the effects of the wind. We feel and we hear the wind. But the direction of where the wind goes, in Jesus' analogy in verse 8, is the desire, the will of the wind. And you don't know where it comes from, where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Okay, so there's a comparison. This is like that. Then I would take that to mean the Spirit births wherever the Spirit wills, and we see its evidences. Specifically, when someone hears and follows Jesus. Like, oh, hey, the Spirit blew through and birthed. But where the Spirit goes and whom he births is, according to verse 8, as I understand it, according to his will, which is a very humbling truth to Nicodemus. Now, I want to, I want to pair that with what Jesus says to the woman at the well in, in chapter 4. In chapter 3, Jesus is talking to a very proud man who's very accomplished and has all sorts of earthly reasons to feel that he is in a spiritually secure place where he can evaluate, where he can size up, where he can see what he makes of Jesus. And Jesus puts in this place and says, look, you're in no position to think you can see. What makes you think you'd know truth if you saw it, Nick? Now, lest we think that leaves us completely helpless, completely just utterly dependent on God's grace, and in some senses we absolutely are, the, other, the flip side of that would be what Jesus says to the woman at the well. Chapter 4. Um, verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. When we went through this, I argued that the well of living water welling up within a person is Jesus talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit. So if you put these two together, you can't make the Spirit birth where he doesn't want to birth. But according to chapter 4, you can ask. And I think that ties in with Jesus' promise. Seek and you'll find. Ask will be given to you. Knock will be opened to you. Which is in parallel with saying there, there are no people who want Jesus, who, who get told, sorry, you're not his sheep. Um, I would say the very act of desiring and asking indicates a work of God in the heart already at work. But here, there's nobody who, you know, sorry, you're not born again. You can ask for this gift. 
Um, but you, what you, what he tells Nicodemus is you can't just study for it. You can't just make it happen. You can't just get your degree and be the D.A. Carson, the grand mufti. No, you need to humble yourself and ask. You need the spirit to do a work. And the spirit works where he wants to work. Now, the good news is where he wants to work is where people ask him to work. So pray for your kids' salvations. Pray that the spirit would birth light. I, I pray every night for my kids that the spirit would birth life and light into their hearts because I know he can do it. Um, so ask and keep asking. And like the persistent widow, ask some more. But recognize you're not sovereignly in control of it. So now, John 16. I thought I said 15, but I think it's 16. Um, I, was, I was talking to, who was I talking to? Was it Jim? Was I talking to you about how we're almost, no, it's Don. Don, like, like seriously, Jesus' public ministry, we're only in chapter 10, is just about done. I mean, I really kind of view 11 and 12 as kind of like an encore because he's going to go and hide. And then the first 16 verses of chapter 11 are Jesus not wanting to leave, but he hears the call, like, should we go? They're going to kill him. They should go. And he goes up, and this is Jesus going up to, to raise Lazarus, but it's also Jesus going up to keep the final Passover. I mean, this is, he's entering into the Passion Week. And then starting in 13, 13, 14, 15, and 16 is one evening with Jesus and his disciples. John devotes, um, my brain, is that five chapters? 13, 14, 15, 16, four chapters. Four chapters that Jesus is teaching in one evening to his disciples. We'll be there for a bit. But in that teaching, Jesus says this, um, verse 7, chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, what is, what is the Holy Spirit? What is the helper's um, ministry? What does he do? He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So all the way back around, this a long-winded answer, Mel. The Father chooses us in eternity past and gives us to the Son. The Son redeems us on the cross, and the Holy Spirit applies that salvation through the work in the heart and the conviction of sin. So our salvation is a Trinitarian effort. We were chosen and given by the Father. We are paid for and ransomed by the Son, and we were quickened and made alive by the Spirit. I don't know if you want me to do more than that, but that was a good 10, 15 minutes. So that's, that's, that's okay, okay, excellent, excellent, okay. Okay, other questions, thoughts, any of this stuff? Um, okay, let me talk about, what, is what I was trying to get at with indestructible sheep at all clear? Um, what I'm trying to, okay, let me, let me back up here then. So if you go back to John 10, um, Jesus' promise that no one will slip through his fingers is a wonderful promise, but people will, I've, I don't, I don't want to be gentle because the people who do this generally, it's not for themselves, it's for people they care for. And so I want to, I want to be gentle here, but um, the promise that no one can snatch them out of his hands cannot be abstracted or separated from the declaration of what sheep look like. And so Jesus' promise here um, isn't, so my analogy was this. In, 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 in earlier in chapter 10, he contrasts good shepherds with hirelings, good shepherds with thieves and robbers. And the good shepherd 
leads the sheep out to food, and he brings them into safety at night. The good shepherd sees the wolf coming, and he doesn't abandon them. He protects the flock, right? Um, so the good shepherd keeps the sheep safe by shepherding them. And so in that analogy, Jesus won't let them snatch them out of his hands because he will continue to lead them, and he'll continue to feed them, and he will continue to guard them from wolves. And I could even add in from, from Ezekiel 34, if they wander off, he's going to go get them. And if he has to carry them on his shoulders, he'll carry them and bring them back. What this doesn't mean is you can have somebody who claims they're a sheep, doesn't follow the shepherd, doesn't eat in the pasture, doesn't sleep in the fold, hangs out with the wolves, but they're just trusting. He said, I can't lose my eternal salvation, so if the wolf bites me, he'll break his teeth. That is not the metaphor. The metaphor is not indestructible sheep. The metaphor is a, is a zealous and effective shepherd. That, that's, that's the point. Um, so if we take and turn this into... So, so going, going back, the, the Reformation doctrine of the perseverance of the saints keeps both, both pieces present, which is we, we, they're going against Rome. So, of course, Rome um, believes you can be in a state of grace where if you were to die, you'd, you'd go to heaven or purgatory. And yet by committing a mortal sin tomorrow or today, you could die and go to hell that even though right now your soul might be right, even though right now you might be in a state of grace, you can fall out of a state of grace and therefore any given moment or any given day, you can't have any consistent um, lasting assurance because even if you were to know right now, because I've received the sacrament right now, I've, I've, I've you know, received grace and I'm good, maybe I won't be tomorrow. Maybe maybe tomorrow I'll commit adultery and then I'll go to hell. Um, th- that's one thing, and I th- and so the the reformers were insisting no, those who the Lord quickens, those who the Lord gives grace, who the Lord births, those who um, he he gives ears to hear and eyes to see, he will not let them perish. He will shepherd them. They will persevere. He will leave the ninety nine and come and get them understand that when we when we confront sin in our body this is part of how the lord causes his sheep to persevere you know he uses means and so when someone turns from their way that's how part of the way the lord uses his body to keep his sheep believing right um so the, the, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is that the Lord will continue to cause his sheep to, to, to follow him. I'll, I'll back that up more in a few minutes. What that's turned into in evangelicalism in, in the West is the truth that once saved, always saved, which then becomes the justification for, and, and I've heard this, I haven't heard this as much in the last few years, but I've heard this a lot, um, you, you look at somebody who's, you know, they're, they're, they're living with their girlfriend, they're getting drunk on the weekends, they're, they're living lawlessly, they don't gather with the saints, they don't read their Bible, they, there's none of the evidences that they hear his voice and they're following Jesus. And then you, you challenge their profession of faith, like, wait a sec, you're a Christian? I mean, this, is, this was me as an unbeliever. I remember, I think I've probably told you guys this story a couple dozen times, but one more can't hurt. My sister Martha gave me a little cross around my neck that I wore as an unbeliever. And I went to a keg party at the University of New Hampshire. And I was outside vomiting from excessive drinking, getting ready to go back in to do some more. And somebody saw the cross around my neck, and they said, are you a Christian? And I looked up, and I said, yeah, but a bad one. And in my head, like that was a category. 
because, hey, we're saved by grace and not by works, and you can't lose your salvation, and on and on and on and on and on. And, and biblically, that won't stand. If I'm his sheep, he's coming to get me. Now, if I'm his sheep, he's, he's going to come and, and bring me back. Go to, go to Hebrews 12. Um, Hebrews 12 puts this together pretty well, I think. Um, and in the metaphor of the good shepherd, the good shepherd doesn't leave the sheep to the wolves. The good shepherd guards them and he protects them and he leads them in good pasture and he brings them back into the fold. Um, Hebrews 12. And the, and the whole point, not the whole point, a big point, the author of Hebrews is to encourage his readers to persevere and not to shrink back, but to hold fast. And so chapter 12 is written. This is, again, part of the means. How does the shepherd cause us to persevere? Hebrews 12 is one of the ways. That's how. Since, therefore, we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That's kind of a daunting. <laughs> And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? The author of Hebrews is writing to Christians who are getting their first taste of persecution. We know that already some of them are being imprisoned. We know that some of them, their houses have been ransacked. It's worse for them than it is for us. And he can say to them, at least the persecute, let me, let me clarify that. You might be in a particularly bad case. The general condition of Christians in the Roman Empire at the writing of this is worse than the general persecution of Christians in America. That's maybe a fairer statement. And he says to them, you've not yet resisted the point of blood, and you've forgotten. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. I'll pause and say, I, the time when I get most frightened is when I know the Lord should be disciplining me and I'm not getting disciplined. That's when I start to get nervous. When the Lord is, is, is dealing with my sin, I feel loved, I feel secure, because I know he's, he's not letting me get away with stuff. If you are left, look, look at verse 8. I'll start in verse 7, but look at verse 8. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. And for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Pause. As godless as the Roman world was, they had their heads on parenting more than we do. Because in our culture today, there'd be all sorts of people saying, these kids. Now, in the Roman world, it's assumed there's some level of discipline taking place. Um, if you are, look at verse 8. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, you are illegitimate children and not sons. Or to put it in the vernacular of John 10, if you're a sheep wandering in the woods with wolves and the shepherd hasn't come and gotten you, you're not his sheep. 
because a good shepherd doesn't leave his sheep. That, that would be the same implication. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of our spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So he's saying this to people who are suffering and they're thinking of shrinking back and quitting and giving up. He's like, no, no, no. The suffering you're, endur you're enduring is precisely one of the evidences you're God's kids. He's sanctifying you. He's, he's working on you. He's fixing you. He's, he's disciplining you for your good. Don't shrink back. Strengthen your drooping hands and your weak knees. Strive for the peace with everyone and for the holiness so that which no one will see the Lord. So um, that, that's the corollary so there can be a period of time where there's some uncertainty. And then David's son from his liaison with um, Bathsheba, I think it's a son. I think it's, well, no, it's the child. The child of David and Bathsheba's coupling is born when Nathan comes and confronts David because David, he tells David the child who is born, he will die. So it's been at least nine months, presuming you know, Bathsheba didn't go into super early labor. So it's something around nine months at least, maybe more. That, that David has hidden his sin, denied it, murdered a man, stolen his wife, and then the good shepherd sends Nathan to come get him. So it's not to say that Jesus' sheep don't ever wander. They do, but they get brought back. But David himself in Psalm 51 confesses, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. In those nine months, I think there'd be a big question mark over David's head. Is David one of Yahweh's sheep? We'll see. We'll see if the shepherd comes and gets him. Oh, the shepherd did come and get him. Praise God, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's how you work through these things. When somebody hardens their heart and, and embraces sin and, and won't yield to rebuke, we get more and more and more alarmed. And then the shepherd brings him back. We go, praise God. He's one of God's sheep. Yay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that's what we're doing in the very act of dealing with church discipline. We're saying slowly with more and more alarm, uh, we're, we're, we're concerned about whether or not you know the Father because you didn't listen to one of us, you didn't listen to two or three of us, we listened to all of us, and eventually we're saying, you won't even listen to all of us? Yeah, we, we're, we, we're not convinced you know the Father, and we'd love to be proven wrong. We'd love for it to be proven otherwise. We rejoice when we're proven otherwise, but what we're basically saying is you're no longer walking like a duck or quacking like a duck, so we're not prepared to confirm that you're a duck. Yeah, and then the Lord will sometimes show us, hey, it's a duck, or back in the vernacular, it's a sheep, it's one of my sheep, yay, you know, but that's, that's what we're doing. So I just don't want to separate the two. On the one hand, you've got um, a view that has no assurance, no ability to, to be confident that just because you're in a state of grace today, you'll be in one tomorrow, um, which, which is you know, Rome's position. On the other hand, you've got this view of, of once saved, always saved that allows for all the manner of licentious living and godlessness, but that's okay. I'm just a bad Christian. And biblically, 
Jesus' sheep hear, know, hear his voice and follow him, and Jesus makes sure no one's going to snatch him out of his hand. Which is to say, if you're striving by faith to follow Christ today, be confident. My, my com- if you were to say to me, Jeremy, what confidence do you have that 10 years from now you're not going to leave your wife, join a cult, and go spend the rest of your days there and die? My answer is not. I'm, I'm not going to let that happen. My faith is strong. That's not that. My, 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 my answer is going to be, you don't know my shepherd, dude. Like, if I even started playing around that stuff, he would beat me upside the head. I've seen him do it again and again, and I love him for it. That's my confidence. My confidence is that Jesus will not let me do that or not let me long do that. My confidence is he'll use his people to come get in my face. My confidence is he'll use his spirit to convict me and not let me sleep. My confidence is his word will beat against my head and expose my heart and my thoughts and that he he will not allow that to happen that's ultimately my confidence just go to go to jude um the doxology that i read in jude this is precisely what jude says god does so if you find revelation which is before maps just go back a book Um, (laughs) all right (laughs) okay no, that Jude closes with this doxology. Um, and let me go back a few verses because part of understanding this rightly is um, we, are to, we are to engage in the very things that cause us to persevere. Like God tells us to do things that, that we would persevere. Um, Hebrews tells us, don't forsake the assembling together. Um, Hebrews 3.12 says, My brothers, beware, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God, but encourage each other day after day while still called today, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How do you, how do you stop one of us from falling away? We, we encourage each other. Hebrews 10, we gather together regularly. Um, here in Jude, he says this, verse 20, But you, beloved, build yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads us to eternal life. And have mercy on those who are doubting. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So there's a whole bunch of activity we're to be doing, including keeping ourselves in the love of God. But then he makes it clear we're doing that in the confidence that God's causing us to do that. Um, I didn't realize how, what a good fit, um, not I, but Christ in me was till we were singing it. Um, man, that, that, that second verse just, ugh. Anyway, um, so look at verse 24. So he gives them this charge. And if without 24, you might think, so it depends on me. I got to keep myself in the love of God. I got to build myself up in the most holy faith. I've got to keep myself. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless for the presence of his glory with great joy. If at the end of the day, you and I do this, it's because God kept us doing it. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present yourself blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. And we are at time, ladies and gentlemen. I'll stick around for a few minutes, but God bless and good day.